Turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. I said we would start a new series tonight, and so we're going to see how long we can do this for. Uh, I'm going to just simply call this Reality Checks, and we'll just tackle a different subject every Wednesday night, as long as the Lord permits, and we don't get interrupted by anything else. I think what we're going to do tonight, what I have notes for, is we're just going to call this Reality Checks, Get a Job. Reality Checks, Go to Work. Reality check, what does it mean to have a job? What does it mean to, to work? Because we're living in a lazy generation, and uh, our nation is certainly falling in love more and more with socialism. I think it's the young generation. The polls are always changing. The young generation, I think it's overwhelmingly 60%, 70% have a positive view of socialism. And they have no idea what they're even bragging about. Of course, Socialism looks really pretty when it's a meme on TikTok or social media. The young people who want socialism don't have a clue what they're talking about. They don't understand economics at all. And, uh, I, you know, there was, I saw uh, some comment with a 19-year-old girl. She said uh, she loves communism, but she hates how strict mom and dad are. And I'm, I'm sorry, but when you're 19 and you're a feminist, activist, and your nose is pierced and you have purple hair, mom and dad aren't exactly Khmer Rouge. They're more like Moulin Rouge, and, and you're going you're gonna to have a rough reality check. Same like those Zoomer college kids who have one bumper sticker that has a picture of Shay, the communist guerrilla pagan, and the other bumper sticker says, free Tibet. Free Tibet from what? Communism. Che was a communist. Tibet is enslaved by communism. So it just shows you how stupid, because there's no better word. I can't even pretty it up. How stupid today's college activists really are. They have zero education, and they're paying a lot of money to not get another one. And so we're falling in love with socialism because it feels pretty that you tax people and give it to folks who don't want to do anything. Now, I don't want to come at it from an economic perspective. I want to come at it from a biblical perspective because we're Christians. I care nothing about academics. I care in that regard. I care nothing about philosophy. I care nothing about economics. What does the Bible say? And so we're going to build a doctrine tonight from the Bible. This might be elementary for a lot of us, but at the same time, we need to make sure this next generation understands God didn't design you to be a parasite. He designed you to work. He designed you to contribute. And when you work and you contribute, you have something called dignity. And you can't buy dignity. You work for it. So Genesis chapter 1, let's start in the book of beginnings. Genesis chapter, let's do chapter 2. So we're going to call this reality check. Maybe next week we'll look at marriage, and then one week we'll look at parenting, and, and maybe, or courtship. Because uh, we as Pentecostals try to make it everything spooky and mystical. <laughs> and we don't need to do that. I may say this at the beginning of every week's message. You, we as Pentecostals believe in the supernatural, but you can't have a supernatural if you don't have a natural. And you can get real kooky 
eyeballs bumping together, squirrely, trying to make everything supernatural. And some things aren't supernatural. They're just natural. And for the most part, getting a job is natural. So just get a job and work it. So let's look at, let's build this doctrine of getting a job because you don't find the doctrine of welfare in the Bible at all. Not as we understand it today. Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to sit around and collect a check. Poverty is a plague, and it teaches people to live in poverty and rejoice at being a parasite. I'm firmly convinced parasites were part of the curse. I believe they should have been better insects, but the curse came when man fall, fell, and the fall took place, and part of the curse is thorns and briars, sickness, disease, death, parasitic, venom, stingers, etc., don't know how that happened. Don't care. But parasites are not praiseworthy. Anywhere you find poverty and you find welfare, you find a generation of children who thinks this is the acceptable way to live. And what that does is strip them of dignity. Even here in the Upper Cumberland, you have generations raised on welfare. And the kids, they want to grow up and collect a check. Hillbilly kids. It's not just an inner city thing. It's a, it's a poverty thing. Poverty doesn't care what color you are. It wants to make you miserable. And it's learned behavior. So we want to make sure we teach our children and we understand from the Word of God that in the very beginning when there was perfection and there was daily fellowship with God, there was a garden and man was put there the man, because woman wasn't made yet. Woman wasn't made yet. Woman wasn't made yet. Man was made first, and he was put to work first, which sets us a pattern. And so men get a job. Now think about this. There's no devil in the garden yet. There is no curse in the garden yet. There's no sickness, no disease there's really no need for food because you're going to live forever. You're in the presence of God. There doesn't seem to be this necessity for sustenance. It's perfection, and yet the will of God is man walks with, man, with God, and man has a job. And if we assume that without Satan, this is how it would have continued on forever, we see the fulfillment of man walking with God, having a job. That's the foundation of society. Man, that is, born a man, made a man. I mean, really think about it. God didn't form man and draw his parts out and get a couple years down the road and go, ooh, I wanted this to be different. And then put Adam to sleep. Let me pull that thing off. 
let me form these things. And that's what I meant. I totally made a mistake. No, born a man, stayed a man, fellowship with God, got a job. And that would have been the fulfillment and the revealed will of God for mankind from the beginning. So we see this. This book of beginnings tells us the reality check is man's number one job is to walk with God and have employment. Something to do. Something to put your hands to. And he put man in the Garden of Eden to dress it. That is to care for it and to keep it. That is to preserve it and to guard it. One preacher observed that that word to keep and guard was the Lord kind of prophesying to say there's a snake coming. Because you don't have to guard something that's perfectly secure. This also lets us know as men, we have to protect things God has given us. That's stewardship. Instantly, if the word isn't just keep it, to tend it, if the word is to uh, dress it, that is to guard it, uh, or vice versa, that lets us know that there's going to be an attack on what God has given us. Anything the Lord gives you is going to come under attack. Why? Because God gave it to you and the devil doesn't like it. It's not that he wants it. He just doesn't want you to have it. So part of the reality check for men is you walk with God, you get a job, and you protect everything God gives you. Only a fool gets in allegiance with the devil to help destroy the thing God has given him. And yet a lot of men do it. And so the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou shalt eat is there thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. So here's another rule of thumb. Ladies, don't fall in love with an unemployed man. You'll ruin your life. Don't fall in love or ever marry an unemployed man. Don't marry a man that's, that you're a harder worker than. No woman should ever marry a lazy man. Lazy men are not fit for marriage. Lazy men are not fit for marriage. Lazy men are not fit for marriage. I would tell my own daughters that. I would tell my son, if you're a lazy bum, no woman should ever marry you. You got nothing to offer. Amen. It's good preaching right there. Amen. Don't fall in love with lazy men. I would ask you, why are you attracted to lazy men? Why would you be attracted to a lazy man? Really? That's going to be a rough row to hoe the rest of your life. Because even hardworking men don't do enough to help their wives. Even the hardest working man will give all he's got all day on the job, provide finances for his family, and then kind of be gassed out when he gets home and not be able to help his wife as he ought to. And that's not quite fair. So why would you marry an unemployed bum? Ooh, never marry someone on welfare. Why would you be attracted to someone on welfare? Two people on welfare create children raised on welfare, and where's that family going to go? Now, you can get off welfare if you want to, but most folks on welfare don't want to. Why would they work? Why would they set an alarm? Why would they get up? Why would they endure a boss? Why would they endure co-workers for 12 bucks an hour when the government will give them 14 to stay at home and do nothing? Welfare is a blight on society because it undermines original intent. I don't care where your people come from. 
I'm dealing with my God. And when you violate divine design, you reap a whirlwind of destruction. So don't worship your culture or your hillbilly people. Worship your God. Amen. Amen. So after God makes man, after man learns to walk with God, after man gets a job and demonstrates his ability to walk with God and keep walking with God, get the job and not eat of the bad fruit, then God says, you know what? It's time for a wife. And he doesn't bring the wife to a deadbeat, a lazy, disobedient reprobate. He brings the wife to the man who knows how to walk with God and work. The calling of every man is pretty simple. Walk and work. <laughs> Ladies, your bare minimum standard, other than a pulse, should be they walk with God and they work a job. Walk with God, work a job. And if you have those two together, baby, you guys will go far. Well, not overnight, but you'll go somewhere for God. If they don't walk with God, scratch them. If they don't have a job, scratch them. They got to have at least those two. If those two things are not at the top of your list, ladies, you're living in la-la land. Good looking. Have you looked in the mirror? Huh. I want my knight in shining armor. Really? Maybe he thinks you're the dragon. <laughs> yeah, everybody wants their knight. Nobody wants to be a princess. Amen. And so God makes this woman, and she's a helpmeet to him. She's a helper. She doesn't steer him. She doesn't control him. She doesn't nag him. He was here first. He has the vision. He has the rules. He has the voice. So that might be a third thing. I don't really want to get into marriage, but it's maybe overlapping a little bit. You don't marry a man who doesn't have a voice. And to have a voice doesn't mean you yell. Only cowards and emotionally, emotional midgets. We'll use that term. That feels fun tonight. Only emotional midgets have to yell at their wives. Only emotional midgets. Little man. Who's the little man? Because you won't yell at a man. You know, you'll get your clock cleaned. But you'll yell at that woman. You know why? Because you're a midget in your heart. Emotionally stunted and really shameful. So just because you have a voice doesn't mean you're used to yell it. That voice says, this is what we're going to do, honey. I just got done talking with our God. This is what we're going to do with the garden next. And she says, well, praise God. Show me how to walk with God. You've been here longer. I would also add, you don't fall for a man that's walked with God less than you have. You don't fall for a man that doesn't know God better than you. If you as a lady are more spiritual than the man, it's not going to work. It's going to be frustrating. You're unequally yoked and your necks are going to be cricked pulling that gospel yoke together. You'll be going in circles, kicking at each other. It's pretty good preaching tonight. We've only read like four verses. But isn't it amazing? All the answers for culture and society and civilization are in the first two chapters of the Bible. Not real hard. Very simple to see. So they, well, look at that. Before there was ever moms and dads, 
Verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. What's a father and a mother? I don't even think they've had sex yet. Do they even know how those parts work? Do they even know the result of those parts working? But here Adam is prophesying that a man shall leave his father and his mother. You don't marry a mama's boy. If he's always going to mama, you got a problem. Sometimes I ask men, I'm sorry, who did you marry? Who, who's your wife? I can't I to ask one guy. I'm not really sure which one's your wife. Is that the older one or the younger one that had all the babies? Because I can't tell which one it is you're committed to. Mama has no business in your marriage. If mama has any role to play, she shuts up to your face and gets on her knees in prayer and prays it out for you. <laughs> There's something weird about a boy with a deep voice trying to lead about a wife through mama's apron. It's perversion. It's perversion. Now listen, I love my mama. She's a good mama. She's been very good in that she's never intruded into my life. She prays for me. She's a great grandmother. She's a good mother-in-law to my wife. She doesn't steer my life. She doesn't steer my home. She doesn't steer our money. She might make comments about my sermons. She might make comment about my worship because she's played the piano. And one thing I am proud of, anybody remember the handbell choirs of like the 80s? My mama is good. I will admit something that will get me beat up like Jeff Harris being a cheerleader. I was once on the handbell choir. But careful, because I can fight with those handbells. But I remember my mom growing up, she would, they, she'd lay the whole thing out. She could play the whole thing by herself, and she would do songs on all of them. It was pretty impressive to watch. My mama will occasionally make a comment about our worship because she's played the piano her entire life and handbell and done choir and all that, so she's musically inclined. And So I just listen to it, and sometimes I tune it out because... They said, handbell choir, mama, this is folksy worship. <laughs> but if you're going to be a man, mama doesn't have a say in your marriage except to pray. Amen. And you'll destroy your marriage when your wife thinks anything she tells you, you're going to run by mama. That's weird. It's nasty. I don't know. When you guys are intimate, do you drag mama's apron in there with you? Weirdo. Come on. Y'all going, oh, where's he going to go with this? I don't know. I'm stopping right there. I'm going to read the next verse. That's how you, as a preacher, you always save yourself with the next verse. <laughs> you cleave to your wife. That means to stick like glue. And they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So we know what happens. The fall takes place. Um, they give in to temptation. Both Adam and Eve partake of the fruit they were forbidden, and the curse comes upon them. And so they had a job. They get fired from it. Their fault. There was no welfare. They reaped. They sowed. They reaped. It gets harder. Everything has consequences. So chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord is pronouncing curses upon the snake, then the woman, now man. And he said unto man, wow, cool. Because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife. 
and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. God never commanded Eve not to do it. She was not present that day. God said, I commanded you. You were there, man, and you failed to do what I told you to do. This is why you want to marry a man with a strong voice. Not that spiritual midget who yells with his voice, but one that has a voice of authority. The Bible says the king can scatter evil with his eyes. He doesn't have to yell. He doesn't even have to raise the scepter. He can just look, and everybody knows, all right, king's not happy. If you have to yell, you're insecure, and you're a little man. Have we said that enough times yet? Do you want to borrow the weirdo's mama's apron? Little midget wearing mama's apron. <laughs> yeah, let's be men. That's what God made us to be. He said, I commanded you, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Cursed is the ground because of you, man. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of man's fall, not Eve. Because of man, everything gets worse for his family. That's how authority works. It starts with the top down. President Ronald Reagan was not wrong with trickle-down economics. Of course, it's an economic theory. Reagan just promoted it. It always starts with authority. I can ruin this church. You can't. It starts with the head. You as the man, you'll ruin your marriage. You'll ruin your kids. Or if you're a single mom, mama will be the one to ruin her family, her kids. But God said, because of you, cursed is the ground. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of your life. Before this, the garden readily produced. It wasn't cursed. It readily produced fruit. It readily produced vegetables. It readily produced good things and only good things. And since man failed to exercise his dominion and his authority, the curse comes and the Lord is quick to blame him. It's your fault, man. You didn't do what I told you to do. In that regard, I would tell all of you men to make sure that God is more real to you than even your wife. I learned that listening to Brother Hagen tapes 25, 26, 27 years ago. Brother Hagen said, the Holy Spirit is more real to me than even my own wife. I didn't have a wife back then, so I would pray, Lord, I thank you that you're more real to me than even my own skin and my own jacket and my own clothes. And so it's very easy as a husband to lead my wife because I love my wife and I know her voice, but I know what God wants more. And God is more real to me. I'm miserable on the inside when I disobey God. And this is a misery that far surpasses anybody nagging on you on the outside or anybody slandering you or anybody running you down in public. On the inside, I go home and I'm miserable if I disobey God. If you don't ever get to that place where God's presence and God's peace is more real to you, you'll ruin your family trying to please everybody. The man's job, or one of many, is to be uh, more in tune with God than even their kids' needs. And when you're more in tune to God, you'll look at your kid and you'll spank and you'll not spare for their much crying. So God says, it's your fault, dude. Now, God didn't say dude, but I say dude. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of your life. Uh, this doesn't sound like happy times. Compared to what you just enjoyed, it's going to be a lot harder. Sorrow, grief, uh, striving torment, pain. When you're used to it being natural and now all of a sudden you got to invent plows and sickles. You don't even know what metal is yet. So you got to work with bone and maybe stone. It's about to get a lot harder. And it's a good typology for anything in our life. When we disobey God, things start decaying. 
And I've said this before, I'll say it again. I read a huge book on marriage 20 years ago or so called Loving Each Other for Better or for Best. And the, it says, this is uh, Jack, I think Jack Smalley, after interviewing 10 or 20,000 married couples in his, his ministry of counseling, he said, if there's any strife in the marriage, it's the husband's fault. So he beats up on the man too. So the men, you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Christ doesn't demand. Christ leads. Christ loves. Amen. Just thought I'd throw that out there as well. He says in verse 18, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face shall thou eat food or bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. In the sweat of your face shall you eat. This institutes a spiritual law that basically says, now, if you don't work, you don't eat. That is echoed throughout the entire Bible time and time again. If you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. God said to the man who he gave a garden to and he gave a job to and he gave a wife to, and then that man threw it all away. He said, guess what? It's going to get a lot harder for you now. And in the sweat of your brow, that's how you're going to eat. And what have we done? We've made everything about welfare because welfare is loving. Well, when you undermine God, mock his law, and say you're smarter than him, there's no love to be found in that. There's demonized deitism, self-exaltation of man's wisdom over God's wisdom. Now, back during the Triple C and, and back during the Great Depression, we paid people to go work. We had the works uh, department and, and, and the Triple C where you, ba- you built parks and you built trails and you built dams and we paid people and you gave them dignity. You gave them a fair wage for hard work and they felt good about themselves. They weren't beggars when they were capable and strong men, but that didn't last long. And then we had to come around with the great society and introduce socialism and begin to undermine dignity and biblical law that says, if you don't work, you don't eat. You destroy a man or a woman's dignity by giving them something for nothing. There's almsgiving to be had in the Bible when the people were missing legs. Or they were blind. (laughs) Those folks sat and begged. Or they had to be dropped off because they had the palsy. Or they were impotent in their feet. Those folks you gave something for nothing because they had no other way to work. But all this other something for nothing mocks God's law. And when we break God's law, we reap the consequences of it time and time again. This establishes a law that says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So reality check, get a job. Rule number one, we get a job because if I don't work, I don't eat. Now go over here to Deuteronomy. Let's look at this verse, a couple verses over here. Deuteronomy. Look at a bunch of them. I've got about five here. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Verse 28. 
At the end of three years, you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase the same year, shall lay it up within thy gates. And the Levite, because he has no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, which are within thy gates, shall come and shall eat and be satisfied. So we're laying aside a tithe to take care of those who are struggling. The Levite, because he has no field to plow, and the stranger, because he's just moved into the area, and the fatherless and the widow. But this is every three years. This isn't every day. But he says this, do this, that the Lord your God may bless thee in all the work of your hand, which you do. So we're going to look at several more verses that say the exact same thing. The second reason we get a job is so that God can bless something in your life. If you don't put your hand to anything, there's nothing God can bless. He establishes here, obey the tithe. But the key point is God wants to bless what you put your hand to. You can't sit on your hands and expect God to bless your rump. You have to go out there and put your hands to something. Go out there and put your hands to something. Holding your hand out is not a blessing. Some people don't have a problem asking for money. Dignity has a problem with it. Now, there's a place where you maybe have to humble yourself and say, I need help. And I understand that. But there are some folks so callous, they think they're entitled. Man, you need to read the Bible a little closer. If you didn't know, we're all entitled to hell. We're not getting that, so we're blessed. Apart from that, grow up, get a job, and put something in your hands so God can bless it. All right? Chapter 15, verse 10. Let's look at verse 9. Beware that there be not a thought in your wicked heart. He just calls them wicked in their heart. The seventh year, saying, The seventh year of the year of release is at hand, and thine eye be evil against your poor brother, and thou givest him nothing. And he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be a sin unto thee. Here you help somebody on the seventh year. You're not always giving out to him. So he doesn't want God's people to be stingy. Verse 10, you shall surely give him and your heart shall not be grieved when thou give unto him because that for this thing, the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works and in all that you put your hand unto. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Jesus Christ said that three times in the gospels. The poor you have with you always. It is spiritual law. You can't do an economic reset and solve poverty. Poverty is a sin problem. It's a laziness problem. It's an ignorance problem. It's an entitlement problem. The Bible, I don't care about Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or your woke professor. The Bible says the poor will always be in the land. But God says, if you'll obey me, whatever you put your hand to, I'll bless. Whatever you put your hand to, I'll bless. That's why you get a job. You start in at the ground level if you have to. Folks who do want to work, sometimes they get this daydream delusion that they ought to start off at the CEO's position. What do you know? You don't even know how, what a board of directors is. You don't even know what the company manufactures or where they have offices. You don't know about the shakeup that just happened last quarter, and you belong in the CEO's office. Maybe making copies and running coffee. <laughs> yeah. 
Look at verse, uh, or chapter 16. Verse 15. Seven days shalt thou keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord shall choose, because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy increase, and in all the works of thine hands, therefore thou shalt surely rejoice. Another verse that says he wants to bless the works of your hands. So if all you do is stay home and play Xbox or just mine something out of Minecraft, I'm not really sure that qualifies for spiritual blessing. I mean, there are people making a lot of money twitching uh, on Twitch with video games, but I don't think that is the rule. I think that's the weird, bizarre exception. I don't think any wealthy Twitcher today, Twitch streamer, thinks, I want my kids to follow my footsteps. I think they think, man, I'm lucky. I don't know how this happened. Weird people follow me all day while I play video games. Hopefully that's none of you. Amen. Guys, if you didn't know, no woman is looking for a guy making money off video games. You can just as easily have an affair with a game console as you can a woman. And no woman wants to be married to a man having an affair with Call of Duty or World of Warcraft or Elgrin Scrolls. <laughs> Witches and warlocks. And I'm sorry to make fun of it, but come on, dude, get a life. You want to be a man? Come out of the dungeons. Get away from the dungeon master and be a man. I don't know of a single woman who thinks, <laughs> my wife says, nope. I mean, you don't even know what I'm going to say. <laughs> There's not a single girl I can ever imagine that would go home to mom and say, mom, I met a man. He is a 17th level mage fighter. He has a cloak of invisibility, a two-handed bastard sword. It's not a dirty word. It's a real thing. You ought to see his die set. Carries it in a crown royal bag. I'm going to marry that man. Together, we're going to rule the seven realms. Yeah, no, no, she, uh, then we're going to get into LARPing. Yeah, the old, the old folks are like, what? Live action role playing. I'm making fun of people, but I'm trying to help marriages. The kingdom of God is not in LARPing or role playing. So, LARPing is where you make your own costume and you get a foam sword. I actually saw this 20 years ago in a park in Knoxville with me and my buddy Andrew the Hog Hunter, and I had never seen it before. And I said, Andrew, what is that? He said, bunch of guys we could beat up real easy. <laughs> we were jujitsu, you know, like, yeah. I, 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 won't even make, I won't even do the impersonation, but they were throwing Nerf balls at each other, yelling out spells. <laughs> Free spell plus five. And I was like, these guys are serious. 
And Andrew said, yeah, we can beat them up real easy. <laughs> anyway, so sitting on your hands, game consoling it, LARPing it. Uh, yeah, I don't think God wants to bless that. If it's your hobby and you do it like once every 16 months, There might be a little bit of safety in it, but I don't know for sure. Uh, chapter 23, verse 20. Let me back up because some of you get offended that because maybe that's your thing. I remember my mama coming home from Park West Hospital about 1985, 84. She had been up on the psych ward. She was a nurse. She came home. And she said, honey, I want you to promise me you'll never do anything called Dungeons and Dragons. And I said, well, what is it, mama? She said, it's some kind of new game that's come out. And Dungeons and Dragons came out early, late 70s, I think early 80s. She said, it's some kind of game you play where you make up characters. And I said, okay, mom, never heard of it. I said, why? She said, I just saw my first demon-possessed man. This is a Baptist woman in the early 80s. She said, the young man has lost his mind. He's obsessed with whatever Dungeons and Dragons is. She said, you promised me you never touch this. And I didn't keep my promise completely because I, I, you know, you, you see it. I, I played T Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles role playing in eighth grade for like a week. And I thought it was dumb. And then we moved to Seattle and the first people that befriended me were so big into it. They, they had the little pewter soldiers they would paint. And that's how hardcore they were into it. And, uh, so I did it once or twice, but then I could never get into it. I was too busy, like, rock climbing, snowboarding, mountain biking, backpacking, playing soccer. Are you saying those are better sports? No, I'm saying those are sports. <laughs> anyway, thank God for a good Baptist mother. Deuteronomy 23, verse 20. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury. That is interest. That the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thy settest thine hand to in the land where you go to possess it. So this is talking about how you handle your money. Notice you follow these certain laws about benevolence and being good, and God will bless your hand. But notice also you're doing something. You're working. You're putting your hand to something. You're working. If you put your hand to nothing, God can help you with nothing. That's why we get a job. We're just building the case of this reality check. Get a job. Deuteronomy 28, verse 8. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses. That means your barns, because they're farmers. Now remember, the Lord told Adam, in the sweat of your brow, you'll now eat. All of Israel was agrarian. They all had their vineyard and their fig tree. They all had their wheat fields. They all had their barley fields. They were completely and totally agrarian. And when they were agrarian, they stored their surplus in barns. That meant they were prospering because they weren't living hand to mouth. They had enough left over to store house. So God said, I'll command the blessing in your storehouse and in all that you set your hand unto and he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Here we have several verses that tell us part of getting a job is getting something you can put your hand on so God can bless it. There's no promise of God blessing unemployment. There's no promise in the Bible that you're entitled to anything if you refuse to get a job. So then the question becomes, well, what job do I get? Whichever one will hire you and not cause you to sin. 
What is sin? Well, it's a cultural thing. You don't drive a beer truck. You don't work at a strip club. You don't work behind the bar. You got to be careful even working at bookstores. Some bookstores you don't need to work at because there's not anything wholesome there to sell at all. But I've had to tell, I had to tell two of my bosses, don't ask me to cheat this company because I will not. And I had to risk being fired. But I'm not going to cheat for you. I'm not going to lie to the state. I'm not going to forge my time card or my hours. I was my billable expense hours. I'm not going to forge any of that. We're not going to cheat on any ASTM testing we're doing. I'm not forging anything. So what's the best job for me, Pastor? The one willing to hire you now. And, 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 and did you know there's going to be pagans working there? That looks like a good place to be salt and light. Did, did, did you know pagans cuss? Do you know what cuss words are? Have you ever heard them before? Have you ever paid money to hear them before? Of course you have. You've been to the movies. The good news is they're going to pay you to listen to these words. It's a much better deal. Did you know pagans smoke cigarettes sometimes? You'll be okay. Maybe they smoke vape sticks now. That, that smells better. It smells like cherries and cotton candy and peach and whatever. It smells like pneumonia. Huh. It'll be okay. I don't know why Christians quit. Did you not know the world is dark? Do you not know you're called to be salt and light? Lord, give me a good job. Put a bunch of pagans around me. Let me win them to Christ. Give me somebody to have a Bible study with. I don't know. Some Christians, they just, I think they want some kind of prophetic job. Something where they can just pray all day. You're a weirdo. Did you go LARPing this weekend? I think you went LARPing this weekend. There's no such thing as a perfect job. Not even working for Christian business owners because they're going to make mistakes too. So if you're unemployed, you get the first job that will hire you. And it is okay if at first they schedule you for Wednesday night or Sunday. You get your foot in that door and you prove to them you're the best person they've ever hired for this position. And you don't false, boast yourself a false gift. That's the worst thing you could do upon interview is tell them you can do something. You have no idea what to do. That makes you a liar. It's going to set you up for a horrible resume. So you tell them, sir, I don't know how to do that, but I'm a hard worker, a quick learner. And I tell you what, there's probably nobody here that you, I couldn't outwork. Just give me a shot. That's what you do. You, you've got to see that if you don't have a job, you have nothing God can bless. You've got to get your hand on something. Whether it's a pricing gun, if they do that anymore, whether it's a, a shovel, whether it's a hammer, a spatula flipping burgers, you get your hand on something so God can bless you. But when you're unemployed, you're guaranteed to not be blessed by God. Furthermore, I'm a little bitter towards you because if you're unemployed, I'm probably paying you. Because I may be a preacher, but I get double taxed because I'm technically self-employed. So my tax dollars go to you to feed you. I ain't never seen a skinny welfare recipient. Just making an observation. Now, my wife will tell you because she understands dietetics or whatever, because most welfare food is high in starches and carbohydrates. 
All right, well, you're still getting more calories than you need. But nobody ever accused the government of knowing how to manage a budget. They just print money. Amen. Let's look at, um, let's go to first, let's go to Timothy, first uh, Thessalonians. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. We're talking about the reality check of getting a job. Get a job. Get a job. It doesn't have to be a great job. Just get a job. When I graduated Tennessee Tech in 1998 with a degree in earth science, I could find no work. And so I took the first thing. Actually, I went to a temp agency. Do you know how humiliating it is to have a four-year degree in a rare science and you have to go to a temp agency? Because that kind of condition, you're going to hop from job to job, filling in work. And mind you, I wasn't a bad student. I was an excellent student. I could have gone straight into grad school if it had been the will of God. So it wasn't like I barely got a degree in rocks. And I'm at a temp agency. But it's what it takes. Because if you don't work, you don't eat. And I left home and I wasn't going back. I left home at 17. Mama's apron strings never choked me. So there's something called dignity. It's also called self-respect. They've always been there for me if I needed something, but I always did my best to not need it because I had a God. So first couple jobs with temp agencies, it was very humiliating, but it was good for me. Then, then Lowe's hires, and I'm inside Lawn and Garden, $6.75 an hour. And that wasn't enough money, so then I ended up helping a buddy who also was in geology. He had a landscaping business, so I did landscaping on the side too. We did a bunch of houses out in Murfreesboro and did a bunch of stuff like that on Fridays and Saturdays to make extra money. And then actually in that season, Mr. Earl helped, helped me. He paid me to work on their house that they were building onto at that time. So I did carpentry work or really just grunt work at Mr. Earl's because it's what it takes. When you have a preaching call and a degree in geology and you can't get a job, you do whatever it takes to make ends meet. And that first year out of college... I made at the poverty level, but I never took wick. And I'm not against it if you need it, but I didn't need it. And I never took welfare. I just said, I can't go anywhere but up. Oh God, let's go up. And then everywhere I went, I worked the best I could to the best of my ability to glorify my God. Because I knew I was better than everybody there, not in value, in work ethic wasn't better than anybody. We're all equal to the same. We're all worth the blood of Christ. But I knew I could outwork every one of these people. I looked at those managers at Lowe's and I said, I could have you in six months. I just did it because this, this is bird feed. This is not hard. Comes in, you scan it, you shelve it. Comes in, you scan it, you throw it on the rack. It comes, it's easy. How can you not be good at this? And some folks in Cookville, they just weren't good at it. Huh. Yeah, Lord of mercy. First Thessalonians. I'm trying to see where I'm going to go. Verse chapter 5. In learning anything, we moved on from how to find a man to how to find a job. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. That is a Greek word that means you refuse to get a job. No show for work. Warn them that are unruly. That's a warning. 
Warn them that are unemployed. Don't give them handouts. Warn them. Exhort them. Warn them that are unruly, that refuse to go to work, that are no-show for work, that refuse to work. We might also point out God is not against women working at all. If he was, we wouldn't have the book called Ruth. Because what did Ruth do? How did Ruth, Ruth meet her man? Working in the field. What if she was a welfare mama? Would have never met Boaz. What about the Proverbs 31 woman, Bathsheba, and all those things that woman is doing? She's an entrepreneur. She has servants. She has fields. She's got an import-export business. She has a textile industry. She has a bunch of kids. She's homeschooling. She's raising up the next generation of laborers for her husband. She's a busy woman. She's not watching reruns or soap operas. She's not a stay-at-home mom doing nothing. <laughs> now, stay-at-home mom's a noble career if you got like three or four little ones or it's your first baby and you don't know what you're doing. But you know, if your kids are grown or, you know, they're driving, what are you doing? You can contribute something, right? It's only in post-World War II America, you know, where all of a sudden women don't want to do anything and then they get mad that we can't do anything. So they, women in our nation can't figure out what they want. Do I want to be free? Do I want to be unemployed? Do I want to be liberated? Do I want to be a CEO? What do I want? What do I want? Do I want a man to take care of me? Man can't take care of me. I'm better than a man. Transgenders prove anything you do, we can do better. Whether it's that transgender Jeopardy winner, first highest woman ever. That ain't a woman. He might be doped up, but his intellect is man intellect. Second Thessalonians chapter three. This is the passage we looked at. Verse six, second Thessalonians comes after first Thessalonians written about a year apart. First Thessalonians said, exhort them, warn them that refuse to get a job. Now he follows up a year later. They are still unemployed. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Same word, out of ranks, idleness, unruly. And not after the tradition which he received of us. The tradition of the apostles is to get a job and work it. Remember Paul told the Ephesians, work with your own hands, that you might have, good, uh, have to give to every charitable donation. Work. He let him that steal, stole, steal no more, but rather let him work with his hand that which is right that he might have to give. That's the tradition of the apostles. Get a job. Which one's the best one? Whichever one's hiring today. <laughs> what if it's the wrong job? Two-week notice fixes any wrong job. If it's filthy, just walk off. It's a right-to-work state because unions are of the devil. Unions are of the devil. Unions are of the devil. There was a time when unions were good, when we were putting children on looms and they were losing hands and feet to the shuttlecock. We don't have that problem today. Unions are a socialistic movement. Come on, you got to be smarter than an Instagram account. I worked with unions in two different states. They're of the devil. Those people are a bunch of entitled, lazy, good-for-nothings. And if they don't get the nickel on the hour they want, they'll shut down the whole job site and torch million-dollar pieces of equipment. I've seen it. Not the torching, but the vandalism. And there is intimidation there is racketeering. There is embezzlement. It is the most corrupt thing. 
and, and our progressives cheer for the labor movement. And I think it's funny, someone as leftist as progressive as Howard Schultz, the owner CEO of Starbucks, is now freaking out because his Starbucks stores are unionizing. Someone that liberal, that pro-trans, that pro-gay is realizing unions don't help money at all. Anyway, you get a job. How about this preacher? There was this guy once named John the Baptist. Remember that guy? Preached so hard, they interviewed him on Larry King. Preached so hard, they cut his head off because he called the king a whoremonger. We should respect our politicians. Jesus called Herod that old fox. That's basically the one who ruins the vine. It's not a good term. And the Roman soldiers came to John the Baptist at the River Jordan and said, what do we do to be saved? He said, be content with your wages. Now, I'm not saying union people are going to hell. And I think you should ask for a raise if you deserve one. But if you don't get one, you don't burn the company truck or break the alternator or slit the tires like unions do to the scabs. Bunch of pagans. Brother Sumrall in the 1950s had a vision of America, and he said he saw a demon of rebellion enter in our culture. And one of the things he saw it specifically do was enter into the labor unions. Entered the home, it entered the marriage, it entered the university. This is the 1950s. It entered the labor unions. And we're still reaping the whirlwind from that. So he says, withdraw yourself from people that refuse to get a job. This is one of the reasons we can excommunicate Christians today. You're unemployed. You refuse to get a job. We warn you. We warn you. We can put you out. Because it's New Testament doctrine. It's apostolic doctrine. We are not a welfare church. Amen. We are not a welfare church. Jump down in verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we command you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. That's the second time it's used that word. That means refusing to get a job. Working not at all, but are busybodies. I think it's perfectly acceptable for a mama, once she's raised her kids, to get a job so she doesn't become a busybody. Go work somewhere. Bring extra income. In. Well, we don't need it. Give it to me. I need it. Give it to the church. We'll preach with it. But don't be a busybody. Or if you're not going to do it, come up to the church 20 hours a week. We'll put you to work up here. I don't get this staying at home doing nothing in the last days. Now them that are such, we command and exhort you by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Work and eat your own bread. Not the government bread, not my bread, not out of my food pantry. You get a job, you eat your own food. Do you see what Paul says? Get a job, eat your own food. But you, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Don't quit your job. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Here's another exhortation to excommunicate. All right, come over to Deuteronomy 24. Let's jump back in the Old Testament real quick. We're going to wind up here in a minute or two. 
You can disagree with anything I've said tonight, but please make sure you got a couple scriptures to back it up. And the ones I'm giving you are more than adequate for you to think like I do. And whatever love verse you want to find, you still have to explain these verses. There's something about socialism and communism that strips men's dignity. It wants to make you a ward of the state. And you forget that on your way to become a socialist or communist nation, they take your children away from you. And they turn them against you. So you can live in some kind of hippie utopia where everything's free because I don't know why. But it'll cost you your children first. That's how it works. Communism has been around 130 years or so since Marx got demon-possessed and let his own children starve to death. Except he was financed by wealthy people, so he was a freeloader. But communism's killed more people than anything else. We've just been preserved here in America. It's really quite shameful that our, this generation in college right now is as stupid as they are. There's too many books out there, but they just want to twitch and tweet and twerk and TikTok. What will the next generation of kids look like? Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. When you cut down your harvest in your field, that's a barley harvest, wheat harvest, and you have forgotten a sheaf in the field, that is a, a bundle of wheat stalks, you shall not go again to fetch it. It is to be for the stranger, for the fatherless. That means children are out there working. For the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of your hands. When you beat thine olive tree, that's how you harvest olives. They beat the olive tree with sticks and the olives would drop it's when they're ripe. When you beat the olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. So the only commanded welfare you see in the book of the law is what I call these benevolence laws. I've talked to my friend who's a Hebrew expert. There's no mitzvah term for these laws. The Jews break down the laws into do's and don'ts. These are negative commandments. That is, they are told what not to do. Don't glean your field. Don't glean your olive yards. Don't glean your vineyards. So these are negative laws. That just means you don't do them. This is the only benevolence you see for the poor. But do you see what is required of the stranger and the fatherless and the widow? What's required? Work. The same amount of work as the rich guy. What if he doesn't work? Does he eat? Whose fault is that? Is it the king's? So you mean the Old Testament teaches personal responsibility? And he harvests according to his need, like the rich guy harvests according to his needs. And they all do the same amount of work. But if you don't work, you don't eat. 
So that hungry belly is a great motivator to go to the field and do what you're permitted to do, which is to glean the harvest, glean the vineyard. You're going to do the exact same work as the rich guy, the exact same work as the rich guy's servant and the rich guy's hired hand. You're going to do the exact same work as the widow, as the child, as a stranger. And you're going to take home the portion that you decided you needed. If you wanted a barrel of, bar of uh, grapes, you got yourself a barrel of grapes. If you decided you wanted seven uh, sheaves of wheat, that's what you picked up. If you decided you wanted two basketfuls of olives, that's where you stop. It's totally up to you. But never were the Jews told to collect this, then distribute. Because the Old Testament does not teach socialized welfare. It teaches personal responsibility. Now for the invalid, now for the lame, there were alms. And you gave alms to the poor those that couldn't work. But if you could work, you were like Ruth. By the way, ladies, you know what was so attractive about Ruth? She was a hard worker. She wasn't arrogant. She was selfless. She cared for a mother-in-law. She barely, well, I wouldn't say barely, she was, wasn't even related to her husband, been dead now. That's what Boaz saw. He didn't see some freeloader. He didn't see some shiftless, lazy woman. He didn't see somebody who just wanted to be doted on and cared for. He saw a woman who said, me and her together, she can harvest that much by herself. Boy, we could really make a difference if we joined forces. He found her work ethic attractive. I work hard. I expect my kids to work hard. Amen. Now, two more, two more passages. And we'll wrap it up. Genesis chapter 30. Actually, let's go Genesis 39 first. Your job on your job is to be the hardest worker. Genesis chapter 39. In chapter 39, he gets kicked out of Potiphar's house and arrested for attempted rape, though it's a false accusation. He gets thrown into prison. But the kid, by now he's a teenager, uh, uh, He's such a hard worker with a positive attitude. He can't be idle. He can't be shiftless. Anything he puts his hands to, God blesses. And it says in verse 20, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Everything Joseph put his hand to prospered. But I want you to see that the boss man trusted Joseph didn't even inspect it, put everything under his hand. Didn't happen overnight, but he proved himself. And that ought to be our testimony no matter what job we're in. It should be our testimony that when we get ready to leave for right reasons, they want to fight to keep us. They're willing to throw money at us to keep us. When we resign or put in our resignation, they don't go, whew, thought that would never come. At least now we don't have to worry about a lawsuit or get the HR involved. They're quitting. Praise the Lord. No, our testimony as a Christian is, do you have to leave? Can, what can we do to get you to stay? 
Would you mind staying an extra month? I'll pay you extra. Can you train your replacement? That ought to be every one of our testimonies. And that's not hard to obtain. Do you know where you live? Do you know the day that you live in? This is easy if you have a work ethic. God honors the work ethic. In all labor, there is profit. Joseph proves that. For before Deuteronomy ever says it, Genesis says everything he puts his hand to is blessed. That ought to be our testimony on every job we ever have. If you work hard, you'll outwork everybody around you, and the boss man will not waste you on some kind of daily wage. He'll put you in some position. Now, one more verse, chapter 30. This concludes the story of Jacob working for Laban, Laban tricking him for an extra seven years for a total of 14 years for his two daughters. We know that Laban tricked Joseph, for, uh, Jacob, made him marry the ugly sister first. Uh, it's not a fair translation that says that she was weak-eyed, which is a rough Hebraism. Uh, I read one commentary that says they, they think that basically weak-eyed meant that she had perhaps blue eyes or light-colored eyes, which they equated with being weak in vision. Uh, and the commentary said we would probably describe her as exotic-looking and beautiful, but in their culture, her eyes were not brown or dark, and therefore she was ugly. Nowadays, girls get contacts so they can have blue eyes or green eyes or yellow eyes. Anyway, so he marries her first, then he gets to have uh, uh, Rachel, then Leah, and uh, works another seven years. So Genesis 30, verse 25, And it came to pass, when Rachel had borne Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away, that I may go into my own place to my country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served thee, and let me go, for thou knowest thy service my service which I have done thee. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy eyes, stay. Stay. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me because of you. That ought to be our testimony as well. When we go to move on, the boss man says, stay. Because I'm blessed for your sake. I can tell I'm blessed because you're here. Laban's a pagan. He has idols, but he knows Jehovah because of Jacob. He says, I know that your God, Jehovah, Lord, Elohim, he's, he's blessed me because of you, so please stay, please stay, please stay. That ought to be every one of our testimonies. You come into the job, it should lighten up. You come into a job, it should administrate better. You come into a job, you make changes. You come into a job, things improve. If you come into a job and things dwindle, there's something wrong with you. You come into a job, things stay the same, there's something wrong with you. You're born again. You have God. You got the Holy Ghost. You got the wisdom of God, the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're healthy enough to have a job, you're healthy enough to improve the workplace. So here's the reality check. Get a job and be good at it. No woo-woo spooky required. Amen. Be early. Leave a little bit later and earn some honor and some favor from your bosses. Go the extra mile and watch the favor of God come upon you. Amen. Amen.